welcome to Stuck for Ideas, a podcast by Alice Wordsworth and Erin Blackmore. The impetus for this podcast came out of quarantine. With the theatre industry in crisis, our self-sufficiency, creativity and imaginative drive were put to the test. And we have found ourselves looking more than ever to others for inspiration. This podcast is about where we and guests go when we're stuck for ideas. get up early, do an hour before the day job starts, because I always felt if you give your kind of morning energy to the job that pays the bills rather than to your own writing, you kind of feel cheated in a way, you know, so I just found it really good to like get up early, do that hour that I could kind of claim as my own hour, you know, and then at least I could go and do my day job and feel like I gave myself the time and space, you know, to do the work that's really important to me. We are delighted to welcome Irish writer Ema Ryan to the podcast, who recently published her debut novel, Holding Her Breath, in June this year. It has been praised as the perfect read for fans who love Sally Rooney, Nisha Dolan and Anna Hope, authors Erin and I have much admired and indulged in. It's an honour to have the latest in that lineup with us today. Ema is currently writer-in-residence at the University College of Cork. We're going to start with a little quick fire, Ema. Um, so don't overthink it. But <laughs> moonlight or candlelight? Moonlight. James Joyce or Oscar Wilde? Oscar Wilde. Three meals a day or avid snacks throughout? Snacks. Plants or cut flowers? Plants. Desert island or busy cafe? Busy cafe. Oh, and I think this book felt really close to both Erin and I's hearts. Erin for her... Irish roots and me being tied to a literary figure I feel like it was such a treat to read something that felt so um, relatable to both of us really and I wondered if you could describe to our listeners what your book Holding Her Breath is about. So Holding Her Breath is a coming-of-age story um, about Beth Crow who's just entering her first year of university and she's kind of got a somewhat uh, mysterious past as an elite swimmer. She was kind of the great hope of her swim club before she kind of burnt out and, and crashed out in spectacular fashion. Um, so she's now kind of just starting to come back to swimming, but hopefully on her own terms this time. And she's also kind of shadowed by the legacy of her grandfather, who was the famous poet Benjamin Crow who um, died by suicide back in the 80s before Beth was born. And she's kind of had a strange experience growing up in the shadow of this man because kind of everyone in Ireland within the world of the book feels this kind of sense of ownership over him and loves his work. And whereas her own family members, like her grandmother Lydia and her mother Alice, find it very painful to talk about Ben. And so on the one hand, she knows everything about him because everyone in the country knows about him. But on the other hand, in a, in a kind of more personal, intimate sense, she knows very little about him because he's not really spoken of that much within the family. So when she goes to university, she meets a lot of people who, who love Ben's work and uh, she has a romantic entanglement with one and she's roommates with another. And kind of through those figures, she starts to kind of 
unpick the layers of her family history and trauma and how it has kind of affected her despite the fact that like she wasn't alive at the time. Oh, well, many congratulations on such a wonderful debut. I feel like it was one of those books that even when I stepped away from it in a literal sense, um, you know, my imagination stayed so firmly planted in that world. And, you know, I could really imagine being on a blustery cliff or wandering (laughs) around the Trinity campus. And I'm so grateful for the teleportation back to Ireland. And Ema, you mentioned starting writing it in 2013. Could you talk us through what that process was like for you? Sure. I was um, started writing notes for it uh, shortly after the, the, the death of Seamus Heaney. And I was working in a busy bookshop on Grafton Street at the time. And I remember the day that the news filtered through and, and people were kind of coming into the shop almost in shock, you know, and um, very, very moved by the news of his passing and talking about his work and buying his books and, you know, chatting to us behind the counter about him. And I started thinking about like, the death of a great artist and all of the kind of the spider webs that that emanate from that you know whether it's to the fans or to the people who worked with him or his contemporaries to you know his family who are obviously you know experiencing it in a very different fashion like they're mourning the person rather than the poet and I kind of kept writing about that and then one of my favorite actors died um Philip Seymour Hoffman and that was kind of a similar thing where like I was really sad as a fan you know and I, I, I re-watched a lot of his old movies um but then I was just kind of again because it, he was so young I suppose and kind of had so much work and art ahead of him that we would now never get to see I kind of started thinking about that aspect of it as well and and that's how the the, the tragic figure of Benjamin Crow kind of came into frame for me um and lots of other things that I was reading at the, at the time kind of influenced the creation of that character as well like um there's a brilliant book, The Silent Woman by Janet Malcolm, who actually, Janet Malcolm passed away there last week. She's a brilliant, brilliant journalist. Um, but The Silent Woman is about Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. And particularly after Plath's death, um, her archives were kind of guarded very closely by by Hughes and by his sister Alwyn. And as a result of that, so many myths kind of sprang up around Plath's life and death because scholars kind of couldn't get access to the material. So they had to kind of read between the lines, you know, in the absence of of actual documents and, and letters. Um, and so that's that's when Lydia kind of came into frame for me, Ben's widow, who is the kind of um, fearsome custodian of, of Ben's papers and archives and doesn't want to let any academics in and is kind of uh, holding on to every last piece of him that, that she can. Um, so all those kind of just influenced how, how the characters came together. Oh, I love that you sort of saw both sides of kind of being a fan and witnessing the ownership on the other side. That's so, such a wonderful inspiration. And I mean, Alice and I have both been swimming in local pools recently. So have we really love the element of kind of Beth's hydrophilic nature. And you describe her draw to water so beautifully. I was wondering if you find that you're drawn to things that you're curious about or whether you kind of have a personal affinity to them already like swimming like swimming <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I I really wanted Beth to be a sports person um because I've played sports from a young age I've played team sports from a young age um, so it's a bit different to swimming but I think particularly as a young woman if if you've been involved in sports since you were young it kind of changes the way that you approach the world I think and approach yourself and your body and your self-image and obviously 
we live in a beauty obsessed world and it's very hard to like tune out those messages altogether. I think none of us is immune to those. But when I think when you play sport, you have this very strong counter narrative where you're not just looking at yourself in terms of like thinness or beauty, but also strength and speed and um, agility and, and all those other attributes that you need to play sport. So it kind of, it gives you a nice counterbalance, I think, to a lot of the kind of damaging body messages that you know young women receive all the time um so I kind of wanted her to have that attitude and to kind of carry herself through the novel the way a sports person would um particularly I think in terms of her romantic relationships like I I wanted her to kind of come at them from a position of strength but I I actually only learned to swim as an adult so um I never learned I think like Sadie has a line early in the book Sadie Beth's roommate she says she never learned to swim because she's from a landlocked county and that that was my line growing up because I never learned to swim and I only learned when I, I think I was 25 and that was also when I was kind of starting to write notes for the novel so I just completely fell in love with the pool and the water and the, the sounds and the sensations of swimming and again just started frantically writing about that and all of that just kind of filtered into the novel but yeah I'm I'm, I'm still not a good swimmer by any means but I do love swimming and I I try and get to the pool or to the sea once a week at least. I wanted to read this description. I hope you don't mind me reading your words, but where you talk about Beth swimming so brilliantly. The, when something bad happens, she is eager to get back into the pool, to the monotony of laps, to shutting out our mental noise, to just being a swimmer and not a person. Flutter, kick, whip, kick, backstroke, breaststroke, butterfly, crawl, follow the dark vein all the way to the end, flip, repeat. And I just remember I started reading this on one of those really hot weeks at the beginning of June where I was trying to swim as regularly as I could. And I just felt like you captured the safety and the joy of jumping into the water so brilliantly. But I feel like more widely swimming felt like something bigger in holding her breath and that the metaphor for, I I don't know, treading water or just trying to stay afloat was under the surface of all the writing. I wanted to talk about whether this was an image or or feeling of coming of age for you and that you wanted to write about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, kind of the, the older I get, the more I realise the impact that sport has had on me. And in particular, like that passage that you quoted, just doing something very mechanical, very repetitive and kind of losing yourself in that, you know, in a way like that's what like meditation is about or like mindfulness is about. It's just about kind of seeding yourself in a way to this like very simple action you know and that's something that I find in in sport um and in that kind of repetitive practice that you have you kind of it's like a safe space you know um but I think for Beth the thing that was her safe space and that was her refuge has also become this very fraught arena and I guess maybe there's like a metaphor there with water that it can it can be dangerous it can be like you know this this wonderful safe space at the same time Um, But I think she kind of got to a place with her competitive swimming where everyone else's kind of hopes and dreams and ambitions were kind of riding on her shoulders. And she realized she was doing it for them more more than for herself. And and that was probably one of the first like adult decisions that she made was like stepping away from this elite track that everyone wanted her to go down. And it involved disappointing everybody except herself, you know. So I think at the start of the book, she kind of comes back and is like, can I do this in a way that is like just for me and deeply personal? Um, 
and actually that that storyline kind of played out in different drafts over the years it played out in different ways like there was one draft where like she starts and she's like going to the Olympics you know and then she kind of pulls out halfway through but I kind of realized probably a couple of years into the writing process that maybe it was more interesting if she had already quit at the start of the book and that you know we're kind of dealing with the aftermath and the different strained relationships that she has because of her decision to, to step away from her sport. I'm so fascinated about the drafting process because I just think like how over that expanse of time, what sways these new kind of decisions? Because I, I don't know, it must be so led by your mood of the day or year or kind of how, what defines that? I have really good like first readers um and definitely my agent Lucy was really instrumental in like the shaping of the book early on and kind of like looking back now I'm like everything happened as it should have because I think when I was in my mid-20s and kind of gathering notes for this you know I had the ability to write a book but I maybe didn't have like the maturity for some of the like themes um so I was actually I'm 34 now kind of releasing the book I was probably like 32 when I was like writing the final draft that got sent out to publishers so I kind of grew with the book as well over time and definitely like some of the early changes like the the first draft was kind of written um in first person so from Beth's closed perspective and that created like a really quick and strong intimacy with Beth but it kind of it made it very difficult to see the other parts of the book I think because you were so kind of blinkered in her in her point of view um and at at some point Lucy suggested trying it in third person and that allowed me to kind of pull back a little bit allow other characters like Sadie to come through much much more strongly allow the older characters to come through much more strongly and because in the previous draft a lot of the the exposition and stuff had kind of happened through Beth's thoughts that then had to happen in dialogue and in in scenes and in, in action it actually it surprises me how much dialogue there is in the book because um, I've written a lot of short stories previously, and most of the short stories are just prose, not not a lot of dialogue. So this was kind of a, a a new departure for me, but I really enjoyed the process of just giving other characters strong voices as well as my as my main character. So, and writing across the generations as well, I feel like that really came through for me. And I, I know we want to talk about that later on, but writing for all those different age groups, but it all felt so truthful, and I can see now how writing and if we just heard it from Beth I feel like that wouldn't have come across I love I love that idea that you feel you grew with the book as well because I think it just adds a whole other level of poignancy to it being a coming of age novel I was wondering um where you grew up in Ireland and whether that landscape sort of had an impact on where holding her breath was set so I grew up in the Midlands I grew up in Tipperary where where Benjamin is from yeah in the book (laughs) um but I set the book Beth lives on the coast of Wicklow and then goes up the coast to Trinity College. Um, and I, I wanted to set it there because I'd worked there for several years. And I was kind of fascinated by the connection that people who lived along the coast had to the sea and how they couldn't imagine, you know, getting up in the morning and not being able to see the sea or, or living away from the sea for any kind of um, extended period of time. And it was it was fascinating and kind of very different for me because I'd grown up in the Midlands, surrounded by like hills and fields and bogs and you know, as I said, I never learned to swim or anything like that. So I was kind of fascinated by that that mindset, that kind of coastal mindset. 
So I kind of wanted to, to place her there. And obviously, you know, her grandfather died in the sea as well. So she has a kind of a an ambiguous relationship with it. She doesn't like swimming in the sea. She much prefers the order of uh, and boundaries of a swimming pool. But I wanted definitely for the Midlands to feature at some point in the book. So Ben grows up there. It very much influences his writing. But also Sadie, Beth's roommate, lives in the Midlands. And we kind of get a glimpse into her home life when uh, towards the end of the book when they kind of take a road trip down to West Cork. They pass through uh, Sadie's, Sadie's home turf. But yeah, it was it was interesting writing about my home place because I think it's very hard to see your home place clearly um, because you've just grown up with it and it's your it's your normal, you know. Um, so I kind of started thinking about any time in college or anything like that, I brought friends, particularly friends from Dublin, back to the Midlands because they were always like really struck by how beautiful it was, which kind of surprised me because I, I think it's hard to sometimes see beauty in, in the place that you grew up um, because you're so familiar with it. And they also found it like really quite spooky and isolated and quiet and dark, you know, and that they kind of saw like that kind of romance in it. Um, so I was able to kind of filter some of their perspectives into how Beth feels when she goes to, to Sadie's home place. You've also really beautifully woven in the sort of theme of heritage and legacy, you know, kind of via the character of Ben Crow and grandfather to Beth. But it's funny, I really, I don't know if this is a sort of personal thing, but I feel like there's a much bigger sense of heritage in Ireland than I feel there is in England. Um, I suppose because of the prevalence of Celtic folklore and the mystic world that Yeats described and that kind of thing, I sort of wondered if you felt like that had an influence in terms of when you came to writing Ben or whether it was more about family and identity for you? I think probably family and identity was kind of the the really strong thing there because maybe particularly in, in rural Ireland, um, you're, you're so connected to your family and, and identity in that way. And if you're being introduced to someone new, it's like, oh, this is like so-and-so's cousin or this is like so-and-so's daughter like you're you're always kind of related back to your family tree and that's how people locate one another and that's how people kind of contextualize one another because it's a small population and you know a lot of the communities are are very close-knit so if someone says that they went to a particular school you know you'll be like oh I know so-and-so from Nina like do you know them you know like we're always trying to like make these connections um and so I think that was something that I really wanted to explore in the novel that Beth feels like she can never quite escape this like long shadow that's cast by her grandfather and you know part of her journey over the course of the book as well is like learning to love his poetry because she's always been resistant to kind of buying into the various myths that have sprung up around him and the kind of the the reverence that a lot of people show for him she's kind of very suspicious of all of that but over the course of the novel she kind of finds a way to I think appreciate him and his legacy um, without kind of falling into those traps of like romanticizing the tortured artist, which I think a lot of people in the book want to do, you know. And I think, and without wanting to name drop here, but and at the risk of sounding arrogant, but I don't want to focus on that bit, but I just could really relate to the premise of being tied to this literary hero with Wordsworth being my great, 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 blah, blah, five great grandfather. Oh, no. Yeah, well, see, look, that's your response. Oh, wow. And then I feel this, like, huge pressure. I always feel, I don't know, there's such a weight in that surname and it has always felt slightly like something to 
live up to more from outsiders perspectives I think of the surname than within my family itself but I think also particularly working in a creative field I don't know no one although no one in my family knew him directly because he died so long ago but he still feels like such a presence somehow and I felt like you captured that even though it's a lot closer for Beth in the novel but I think how the weight of our ancestors plays into our coming of age is something that I hadn't given a lot of thought to and I wondered if you could talk about how this idea originated of Ben I guess. Yeah I I, I took aspects of both of my grandfathers in different ways um my dad's dad, Seamus, was a fairly well-known figure. He was kind of um, very much involved in the GA, which is the Gaelic Athletics Association in Ireland, um, which is the sport that I play. And he was kind of also like, he was a writer, uh, an amateur historian, and he wrote a couple of books in, in his life. And I have a very vivid memory of him sitting in his living room, like rattling away at a typewriter, um, probably while, you know, five or six grandchildren, like, were running around screaming around him but like just continuing to to work and it just gave me such a good model of writing as a practice you know like as, as a job as something that you go and do every day um rather than this kind of this glamorous idea of, of what a, an author or a poet might be he just kind of did it you know and it was only in retrospect do I kind of realize that was probably a very early model for me something to aspire to you know um but definitely I had the experience of being introduced as his granddaughter and he was he was a very like charismatic person as well so a lot of times when someone would be like oh this is Seamus's granddaughter people would light up a little bit and kind of look at me as if I was special and they were looking at me and seeing my grandfather you know and I always found that a very strange experience and I kind of wanted to to give that to Beth a little bit and then my other um grandfather my mom's dad uh he died Jackie he died before I was born and so it's a really unique relationship I think when you have this kind of close ancestor that you've never known but there's all these stories told about him um he's very much alive kind of in the family lore but you kind of don't really have any kind of sense of them as a person like how tall they were or you know what their voice sounded like or what their presence in a room was like you know you just have the stories and the pictures and in that way I think especially as a small child um you know, this person kind of becomes almost like a celebrity to you, you know, because you just have these, this handful of iconic photos and this set of stories and everything else you kind of have to fill in the blanks yourself. And and they do have such a profound effect on you, partially because, you know, you probably have genetic influence from them, but also like they raised your parents, you know, so there is a direct kind of influence both in nature and nurture from this person, but yet you've never known them. So I think it's a really interesting and and complex relationship. And that was something as well that I kind of wanted to to tease out. It's interesting that you talk about voice because I loved that element (laughs) in the book where you brought in the fact that, you know, Beth would listen to recordings of her grandfather reciting his poems. And that must have been just a totally surreal Mm. thing of kind of hearing this, you know, deep booming voice coming across almost from kind of from your ancestry. So fascinating. And being able to read your ancestry as well. Mm. Is, and the world read it is, you know, yeah. is an odd premise, I think, sometimes. And was there a literary figure you had in mind that you based Ben on? Or was he an amalgamation of poets? He's definitely an amalgamation. Yeah, he's, you know, a little bit Heaney, a little bit Hughes, a little bit Plath. There was certain poets, because I, I wrote a lot of poetry for him as well. 
and I'm not a poet so they were all you know not great <laughs> but I was able to maybe take a couple of phrases and lines here and there and kind of pepper them throughout the novel to kind of create the sense of a back catalogue you know for the reader that you, you felt that there was a body of work there somewhere um but I, one of the, the ways I got around it was I kind of riffed off poets that I really admire. So Don Patterson, probably most obviously, but also also those other poets that I've mentioned. So yeah, he's he's very much an amalgamation. And, and even in the way that we talk about tortured artists and do, these kind of romanticized doomed figures, I mean, there are so many that you can choose from um, in terms of like Kurt Cobain or, you know, um, Ian Curtis or Amy Winehouse or, you know, the 27 Club, basically, you know, all, all of that kind of went into it as well, because I definitely think the way that we look at these figures is 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 really problematic, you know, as a society. But it's it's very understandable as well. You know, we crave narrative and we, we want things to to make sense. Um, and I think sometimes we maybe read into someone's work in a way that doesn't really do justice to their work, you know. Um, so I kind of wanted to, to look at that as well. The learning that happens through the generations of these women and the wisdom that's passed down from them, but also a lot, I felt a lot from Lydia to Beth and where she says, they have that conversation towards the end of the novel where she says, don't worry, Beth, you may have lost him, but you'll never be fully gone. When they argue, you'll be there like a shadow. Every fight they have will be about you. And I feel like the female role models that you create in this novel do they have you had big female role models who have played a part in your life is that where they came from or I've definitely had a lot of really strong kind of maternal figures um my own mum and my, my my grandmothers my older sister but yeah I think I kind of I very much wanted to create like a mini matriarchy kind of that that Beth is coming from and she's kind of grown up in this almost like idealized situation in a way um where it's it's just this very tight circle of her and her mother and her grandmother all supporting each other kind of through life they don't need any any male figures you know um but i think as 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 the novel continues um she kind of learns a lot about her grandmother like someone who she has always like loved and looked up to and gradually of the course of the novel she realizes that this person that she loved made some very questionable decisions and and ethically dubious decisions at times and she kind of realized she starts to see relationships in a new way particularly the relationship I think between her mother and her grandmother and something that she would have seen as like this very close and supportive bond was actually maybe codependent and 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 unhealthy in some ways um so I think we grow up with 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 myths about our 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 family as well you know and and kind of preconceived ideas about what different relationships are like and the process of kind of unpicking those those myths and and seeing things clearly can be quite painful you know but I think you can still love the person while while recognizing their flaws and and their mistakes you know it's such a tangible thing that I really I can almost remember the moment where with certain members of my family you like realize they're just humans and flawed humans rather than just these idealized figures that you know uphold certain roles in your life and then you get to a certain age when you're more of an adult and you go actually they're sort of just like me and they they can't they're not untouchable in the way that you thought they once were 
Um, I've actually been reading Conversations on Love by Natasha Lunn, and it kind of looks to broaden how we define and search for love, basically, um, to kind of think of it not just as romantic love, but also human connection. And it really made me think afresh about your book, because whilst we also have the element of kind of an intoxicating chemistry between Beth and her Trinity English lecturer, not her lecturer, but, um, and I love that that's a really rich detail in which we get to know Beth, but I loved that what prevailed actually was this sense of an intense bond between all the other females in the book. Um, Was this a conscious choice or did that just sort of happen naturally? A little bit of both, I guess. Um, Definitely the relationship between Beth and Sadie, her roommate, over the course of several drafts just kept getting stronger and stronger and kept coming more and more to the forefront. And there are these two characters who are just incredibly different on the surface, but I think they make, they both make a decision early on to just be there for one another, you know, no matter what, and to like stick together, even when they don't really understand each other's actions. And yeah, I think in, in, in earlier drafts, I had a couple of moments where, you know, they fight or they fall out and then, you know, they have to kind of come back together. In one of the drafts, I just said, why am I doing this? You know, why do I feel that because they're two female characters living in close proximity that they have to fight, you know, um, I'm just creating conflict for the sake of conflict. Like this isn't actually serving the story. And would it be a much more powerful story to tell of like two female characters who are thrown together and are just like staunch allies the whole way through. So that's, that's kind of how the relationship kind of ended up. And I think looking back on the book, I think you're right that like Beth and Justin's relationship is really kind of a secondary relationship and, and Beth and Sadie's is maybe the, the real love story of, of the book. I read an article as well that Artie coined this genre as Trinlit, um, book <laughs> set in Trinity Dublin, so akin to sort of Sally Rooney's normal people. How do you feel about this term? <laughs> I find it really funny. Um, I don't mind it at all. Um, it's, it's a nice group of books to be, you know, put together in a school with, you know. Um, you know, I really love Sally's work and... I love, um, I just read Snowflake by Louise Nealon, which I really enjoyed as well, which is kind of also set in Trinity. And But even when I started writing the book um, in 2013, so kind of pre-Sally, I, w- I was kind of very conscious even then that the Trinity novel was like a thing, you know, in, in Irish writing. And um, one of the ones that I'd read that I really loved was Claire Kilroy's All Names Have Been Changed. If you've um, come across that one, it's set on a, an, on a creative writing master's in Trinity. It's brilliant. And there, there are so many others through the years. So even in 2013, I was kind of aware that this was well-worn territory. Um, but I just myself completed um, a master's in creative writing in Trinity in 2012. And there was part of me that just kind of wanted to keep living in that world because I, I only spent one year in Trinity, but I found it so magical and atmospheric. Um, so that was kind of part of my decision to set it there. But yeah, I think after afterwards... I moved to Cork and I actually started working in UCC down in Cork, which is another very old, very grand, very beautiful campus. Um, and because I think I'm like a sponge when it comes to writing. I just write about what's at hand you know, <laughs> or what I'm doing at the time. Like the Trinity campus started to slowly morph into the UCC campus um, and it became very porous for me. And even aspects of, of Beth and Sadie's apartment um, is from my own undergraduate alma mater, which is DCU up in the north side of Dublin. So in the end, it kind of became this um, mix of all three in a strange way. 
Um, and obviously it's 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 very recognisably Trinity because it's right in the middle of, of Dublin city centre. So there's no getting away from that. But I did at, at, at some point make the decision to take out the, the word Trinity and it's just the university, um, I suppose, as a way of kind of honouring the fact that all of these other places had also kind of fed into my image of it. Um, and I think as well, because I only spent a year there, I probably didn't get to know it in the kind of intimate way that an undergrad would. If you spend four years there, I think you really tap into the politics there and the the kind of bubble of, of, of being there. I was kind of a visitor almost. I was only there for a year. So um, maybe I'm kind of looking at it through rose tinted glasses in some ways. <laughs> but um, maybe the next novel will be set in, in a different university, maybe. Um, DCU has been very neglected. There's been no DCU novels. So uh, <laughs> that's my next... My next project. You need to coin that term. (laughs) (laughs) And in the book, um, I'm quoting him like he's a real poet, but (laughs) Crow Crow slash you write that um, you can't summarise a poem, you can't adapt it into another form, it just is. And I wondered if you had this same feeling about books. I think fiction can be adapted, definitely. Yeah, I think another thing about writing the book was I was writing writing a poet's life and also learning about poetry in real time. You know, um, I probably only started reading poetry in the last 10 years. Um, but I think when you when you started, it's very kind of compulsive and you just find yourself turning to it again and again. I'd been very much just a fiction reader before then. And I was just so attracted to to the form and, and kind of frightened by the form as well, because I'm a writer, but I feel completely unable to approach poetry in in any kind of meaningful way or any kind of like with any kind of competence, you know, um, because I think it is just this very ephemeral and present thing in a way that fiction isn't, you know, I feel so much more comfortable in, in the realm of fiction and I have so much respect for people who can kind of hop between forms, you know, some people can write like screenplays and novels and, and short stories and poetry and I'm very much just uh, short stories and novels, I think. Um, but yeah, no, I think, I definitely think fiction can be adapted. I'm not so sure about poetry. I think it's its I own think what thing. I'm really eager to ask as well is, do you think this could be the next stunning normal TV, a uh, normal TV, normal <laughs> TV, normal people TV sensation? Because I could really see it as oh. I was reading it. It's so visual. Oh, that, I mean, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I think I'd be very okay. much open to that. <laughs> we'll make it happen, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> um, Ema, I'm really interested in how lockdown impacted the kind of final year of this creative process. Yeah. You talk about being a sponge and there was a very different kind of life to sponge up. Definitely. Um, I think I was really lucky, actually, because I got the book deal in December 2019. So just before everything kicked off. And then... Um, most of 2020 was spent like working with my editor at Sandy Cove and kind of whipping the draft into shape but that was that was okay because I was working on something that was there I wasn't trying to create out of thin air Um, and I think I would have found that really difficult I think in 2020 and a lot of my writer friends found it really hard to create um, in lockdown and just particularly the the way that I work, as I said, like I I totally work from from observation and experience rather than pure imagination. So I would have found it really difficult trying to create from scratch last year. Um, 
just because there was no kind of input from the outside world, you know, there was no kind of none of that friction that you usually get. Um, so I, I, I was very lucky, I think, that I had those edits to work on and that kind of took me through the year. Friction is such an interesting way of describing that relationship with the outside world. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I suppose just things that kind of snag on your consciousness. You know, if you're just like out for a walk or if you run into somebody unexpectedly or, you know, um, if you're sitting in a coffee shop, just people watching. I think there are just things that like grab your attention um, and unexpected things. You know, the, the, ra- the randomness of everyday life, I think, can be can be very inspiring and I also draw a lot of inspiration from like other art forms, like just listening to music or like watching movies, playing video games, all of that kind of feeds in as well. Other books as well, obviously. Um, But I think you kind of have to go about those things very intentionally. Whereas the thing that I really missed in 2020 was just like the freedom to wander and and go places and have like unexpected things come across your path that um, might inspire something. Talking of other influences, if you had to choose three books that were the ones that inspired you to become a writer, or one, or ten. <laughs> um, one of the really formative books for me was The Collected Stories of Amy Hempel, which I encountered um, in my last year of undergrad. I was studying journalism and I got a chance to do a semester abroad in Boston University. And I I was able to take any class that I wanted. And so I took no journalism classes at all. I I took all kind of like English lit type things and and psychology. And um, I took my first creative writing class. And that was kind of a revelation, even just the work that the tutor kind of introduced us to. Weirdly enough, growing up in Ireland, and we have this very strong short story tradition, but I hadn't studied short stories seriously at at any point um, in in my school or college career. And we just read a load of short stories and I completely fell in love with the work of Amy Hempel, who's this kind of revered American short story writer, quite reclusive, um, has never written a novel famously. She's kind of uh, resisted all pressure to, to write a novel. She's produced, I think, five collections of short stories over the course of her career. Um, it takes her about 10 years to write each one. But um, she's an incredible writer and you know, she can do as much with a two-page story as a lot of writers would struggle to do in a novel. Um, so she's really just a master of, of minimalism and brevity and an emotional impact. So um, reading her short stories kind of made me, made me really want to start writing seriously. I'm trying to think of others now. I think Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides was one of the novels that I read in college that like really blew me away. And I think it's actually informed this novel to a certain extent because the grandparent figures in Middlesex are so important and it keeps kind of going between the present day of the story and the grandparent story. And that was very much a tension that was in my book as well. There was times when Ben and Lydia kind of threatened to take over the narrative in some ways, because I just love those characters so much. And my editor said to me at one stage, like, remember, this is Beth's story. Like, you know, you know, keep your, keep your eye on, on the prize, keep your eyes on the prize there. But yeah, I think, those kind of intergenerational stories um, are really interesting to me and and definitely that book had had a big impact on me as well. Um, We've spoken a bit about this tortured artist. Maybe in an act to dispel that, you could tell us a bit about how you structure your days as a writer and what what the life of a writer looks like on a day-to-day. 
I'm having like the best year because I'm writer in residence at UCC at the moment. So for the first time ever, writing is my day job. Um, I just get up in the morning, go to the desk, do my, I only do a couple of hours, two or three, and then I'm kind of spent. But I've never had that before. I've always had a day job. Um, I was working in, in an admin role up until the end of last year. Um, so when I had that routine, it was like, get up early, do an hour before the day job starts. Because I always felt if you give your kind of morning energy to the job that pays the bills rather than to your own writing, you kind of feel cheated in a way, you know. So I just found it really good to like get up early, do that hour that I could kind of claim as my own hour, you know, and then at least I could go and do my day job and feel like I gave myself the time and space, you know, to do the work that's really important to me. Um, and then I would often do another hour at lunch uh, at work of writing. And then I would kind of try and keep the evening free, you know, just to kind of unwind and cook dinner or, you know, go for a run or, you know, watch TV or whatever. Because um, I think giving yourself breaks is really important as well, you know. Um, and that's the reason I think it's it's a good idea to kind of carve out definite hours for work because if you carve out definite hours for work you're also carving out definite hours for like rest and play and all of those restorative things that help you to write as well you know that sounds so lovely I'm so glad you've now got the time to dedicate to yeah it. as you deserve your writing yeah. is really really brilliant so I'm <laughs> glad you're doing it all the <laughs> yeah. time yeah so long admin <laughs> yeah so long admin <laughs> but Ema where do you go when you kind of feel your creative juice is waning is it a thing that you do or a place that you seek when you're stuck for ideas? Yeah, I, as I said before, I, I'm, I, I'm a writer that really needs outside input, you know, and even just letting things like filter through my subconscious over the course of a week and then I'll find myself writing notes about something. Um, that's very much the way that I that I work and just kind of processing experiences like that. But I love that idea in the artist's way about, you know, taking yourself on an art date once a week you know and I don't do that every week I'm sorry to say but I, I intend to do it every week um so even just like going to a gallery or like going to the cinema to like watch you know some obscure movie or or something like that um those are kind of the things that that feed me and uh even even like reading a book in a different setting like reading a book in a park or like reading a book in a, a new coffee shop that you've never been to I think those changes of scene can really just um heighten an experience like that for you and, and kind of almost cause you to pay closer attention I guess that's another thing that we were missing last year there was lots of parks to sit in all right but um not so much coffee shops but yeah those are kind of and very populated parks in a way <laughs> I had not seen before so I felt like I couldn't find the vent there was never a bench to go read a book on because there was always someone <laughs> my most magical outdoor space that I've recently discovered is Brompton Cemetery in London wow. and I had just never been before which is ridiculous because I've lived in London all my life and West London as well but it's just so magical I think um Emmeline Pankhurst is buried there famously yet to find her grave but it just looked so idyllic recently with the cow parsley out and just when the sun sort of shone across it I mean everyone laughs at me when I say I have my lunch break in a cemetery because obviously that's not the most appetizing place to spend your time but I can't describe how magical it is Oh, wow. I'm getting pictures I get a picture every lunch break of a different grave and I'm like <laughs> 
<laughs> you're like focus on the flowers look at the flowers and the light I'm like you're still in the graveyard <laughs> we asked you to maybe read a extract of your novel would you be happy to share some with our listeners yeah no problem I'm just going to read maybe the first two pages or the first page and a half which kind of gives you an introduction to Beth perfect she has the whole pool to herself she has seen the others off the rugby players in for their recovery swim who splash around for 20 minutes and then retire to the sauna the slow steady pensioners who breaststroke endless laps Beth counts them leaving one by one as she sluices through the water, flipping tautly at each end. It will never leave her, she thinks, the need to win. The dart passes on the bridge that stretches over the complex, momentarily turning the pool nightclub dark. She breaches the surface to adjust her goggles. The lifeguard makes eye contact and then looks pointedly at his watch. She swims another five laps before getting out, her skin drummed tight. It feels illicit somehow, being alone in the water. No coach towering over her at the pool's edge, saying surely she can do better than that. Now she does as she likes. After a hundred laps, she feels calm and rejuvenated, her body pinging with the tremors of exercise. An old, good feeling. She started again last winter, doubtful at first, not telling anyone. Poking the pool's calm surface with a toe, as if testing a bath for temperature. But as soon as she slipped into the water, she felt her body relax in a way that it hadn't in months. It wasn't the act of swimming that had been the problem, it turned out. It was everything around it. It was the spectre of her potential rippling after her, impossible to shake off. Her new on-campus apartment is opposite the sports complex. Her bedroom overlooks the climbing wall with its brightly coloured footholds. This morning, she sat in her window and watched. It was raining, and it seemed as if the climbers were in danger of being engulfed by the raindrops that streaked down her window. Later, she will fall asleep to the rumble of the dart, and she imagines this part, at least, the slosh of water in the dormant pool. Thank you so much. That's so lovely to hear it in your voice. (laughs) And it's been a total joy to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, guys. It's really fun chatting to you, too. So I thought I would talk about The Silent Woman that Ema recommended, about Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, written by Janet Malcolm. And she basically questions whether it's ever possible to sort of know the truth about Sylvia Plath and her marriage to Ted Hughes, which ended with her suicide. Now, I'm only a third of the way through the book, but I can so see how its discourse was so interesting for Ema writing Holding Her Breath, because sort of Hughes admits to destroying one of Plath's journals after her death in order to protect their children. So the kind of concept of legacy and archives, I think, is such an interesting parallel. Um, I was also really interested in how she sort of examines the nature of biography more broadly. And I think in particular, after the death of its subject, who is sort of essentially frozen in time. And I'd never really thought of it like this. She had a really good quote where she says she sort of likens the writing of someone 
posthumously um, to Prometheus, whose ravaged liver was daily reconstituted so it could be daily re-ravaged. Because sort of by the at the point of writing, Plath was sadly sort of not there to explain herself or her choices, whereas Hughes was sort of equally frozen and had to watch his younger self being picked over by biographers, scholars, critics and everything. And I just think that's such an interesting way of looking at it that I hadn't necessarily considered before. Um, and she looks in particular a biography written about Sylvia Plath by someone called Anne Stevenson called Bitter Fame, which was completely slated by its readers when it came out. Um, and there was a strand of criticism that kind of says that she allowed for too much speculation and doubt into the picture because she said that the biographer's business, like the journalist, is to satisfy the reader's curiosity, not to place limits on it. And I just think that's such that's so fascinating that idea that you kind of can't you can't sort of go oh well one imagines that she might have felt like this you have to mm. kind of just take take a stance whether it then is sort of but in, instead she sort of showed too much sensitivity towards you know the family members who remained and she let in voices from people who had known her which then sort of as she explains sort of overshadowed the, the narrative voice of the biographer themselves that's so interesting and I feel like that I think I feel like that isn't a academic uh insight we get very much I feel like Mm. that that sensitivity and that handling of care of your subjects that you are analyzing and remembering that they are actually real people with real relationships often gets lost when you're trying to yeah, absolutely. And it feels right. like something we should praise therefore. But I mm-hmm. can also see the argument for thinking that it sort of doesn't give you a clear narrative either. Mm-hmm. I think I think in a way, because biography is obviously based on on truth and history, that I think one maybe can think that it doesn't have to be a storytelling in the same way when actually I suppose what this is suggesting is that you still need to kind of take a stance I think the person who there was someone she mentioned who wrote um an excerpt for this biography who basically completely didn't like Plath and but as a result whilst it was probably quite an unforgiving um presentation of who she was it was also really clear in its argument I suppose which I suppose is sort of easier to engage with Mm. potentially it makes me think about um, grief is the thing with feathers that we went to go and see at um, Barbican, I think it was. The Barbican, mm. yeah. And how, I just feel like the world is so fascinated by Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes' relationship that I feel like, oh, I don't know, I think they need to be cut a bit of slack sometimes. <laughs> I know, well, it's kind of what Malcolm is getting at with this book and I haven't got far enough to sort of know the full depths of this but it is this idea of like why are they still Mm. capturing our imagination so much and that's sort of what she's looking into here with all these you know varying and contradictory biographies Mm. and portrayals of them that have you know lasted the test of time so much so it's called the silent woman yeah the silent woman sylvia plath and ted hughes okay I'm going to add it to the list. Thanks, Emma. Yeah, what was your one? Well, I 
uh, was really inspired by Ima talking about um, her love of Amy Hempel. And you know how much I love a short story. Um, so I thought I would perhaps read an extract from um, her collected short stories that were published in 1987 or something. Um, but I really enjoyed delving into them. And I found, well, I found one that I felt was very apt for this episode. Um, and it's called The Tub. And I thought I could just read an extract of the end for you. Yes, please. I lock the door and run a tub of water. Most of the time you don't really hear it. A pulse is a thing that you feel, even if you are somewhat quiet. Sometimes you hear it through the pillow at night, but I know that there is a place where you can hear it even better than that. Here is what you do. You ease yourself into a tub of water. You ease yourself down. You lie back and wait for the ripples to soothe away, and then you take a deep breath and slide your head under and listen to the playfulness of your heart. I just thought I wanted to continue on our theme of water and I can really see again in this how Ema is inspired by her work. I felt like similar overtones of sort of mysterious and playful language and settings. And the New York Times article said that um, Amy Hempel has a way of constructing really simple and short stories, but that the speed of their connection is really breathtaking and mesmerizing. And she's just had a new collection released um with another incredible um well I want to call it a poem but she calls it a short story so I must that opens the collection can I read one more is that am I not being really greedy no no go I'm like <laughs> I love the line the playfulness of your heart I know so, so gorgeous okay but that so that was an extract of the tub so listeners read the whole thing because it's not long and it's really brilliant and then this is a whole story in and of itself from her new publication it's called sing to it at the end he said no metaphors nothing is like anything else except he said to me before he said that make your hands a hammock for me so there was one he said not even the rain he quoted the poet not even the rain has such small hands. So there was another. At the end, I wanted to comfort him. But what I said was, sing to it. The Arab proverb, the Arab proverb, when danger approaches, sing to it. Except I said to him before I said that, no metaphors. No one is like anyone else. And he said, please. So at the end, I made my hands a hammock for him, my arms the tree. Oh, oh it's like... beautiful. I and that's the whole story. A hammock for him, my arms the trees. That's so lovely. Thank you, Ema, for sharing these amazing inspos with us. And if you haven't had enough of a storytelling fix, check out these podcast partners we've been enjoying. Out of the Woods, a new podcast series of compelling audio dramas from the Balkans. Series one, Kosovo. Excuse me, sir. Is it Tom Farrell? Yes. My name is Robert. I'm from the Department of Culture. Can I speak with you for a minute? Fifth Dimension by Miran Hajic. <gasps> Look at these people, Tom, celebrating their nation. 
taking pride. Look at what it means to them. Look at what the flag means to them. With original music by Trimor Domi. Doesn't it make you angry after what they've done to your family? It does. But I feel powerless. You're not. Nude by Ulpian Maloko. Samia, how do I look? I look fine. You remind me of myself before kids. Cool, cool, Samia! Oh my god! Oh my god! Kure, what did you do? It's not the time, Mum. Nazmia, are you okay? And where is Mr. President? By Agnesa Mehanove. Excuse me, sir! Sir, excuse me! Where is Mr. President? Hey, hey! Can you please get out of the way? You were guarding him just now. Sorry, no questions. Move aside. We'll step up your security. I have a young family. So do I. Yes, but it's not my job to risk my life. Out of the Woods. New place from the Balkans. Brought to you by Miran Hajic Productions. Supported by Tamasha Intent New Theatre and Arts Council England. All episodes will be available from June 21st. Subscribe now on Apple... Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe so other creatives can find us when they're stuck for ideas. 